Father in heaven, thank you for this reminder of the treasure and preciousness of your word. Truly, it is more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. And Father, help us to to treat in your word as we come to hear it and read it as the treasure that it is for us. Speak to us from your word this morning. Be glorified through your word this morning. May your spirit teach us from your word and speak to us and help us, help us grow as people, as worshipers of you. Well, Father, we... Uh, give you thanks as we look forward to Thanksgiving season, or this week actually, and ask that uh, we would particularly, as we have you open doors for us in our families, gatherings, to give you thanks. Thank you, Lord, for all who are gathered with us too uh, this day, and pray that you would bless and minister to each one. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, uh, good morning again. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is where we're going to look at this morning. Psalm 19 is uh, one of those really well-known psalms. It's kind of it's not quite Psalm 23-ish. It's Psalm 23 is probably the top. Psalm 100 is pretty close. Psalm 19 is another one, but you don't memorize that one. Uh, but uh, you know, Psalm 19 probably one of the more familiar ones. Uh, and uh, it's just some, I was, in fact, I was, I was looking through. I thought, wow. I'm surprised I've never preached on this psalm. It's probably because it's such a well-known psalm. Uh, it's a, I was hesitant to handle psalms that are uh, that everybody thinks they know what it's about, you know. And uh, I want to, uh, but hopefully, uh, I think the timing's right for uh, this uh, the moment and the time for our church to hear what God has to say to us from Psalm 19. Uh, again, uh, oh. I want to just say uh, thank you to all of you who helped out yesterday at our Thanksgiving dinner. It was a wonderful encouragement. Those of you that planned, those of you who helped out in different ways, participated. Uh, a lot of good sports uh, yesterday. Appreciated you and, and this hearing that was given. Uh, encouragement to all. Um, and so I thank you, uh, church family, for that time. It was wonderful. I hope you were encouraged too for those that came. And, um, and, uh, and if you missed out yesterday, uh, at the end of our service, I'm going to uh, leave you with one application that you can apply and, and participate in our Thanksgiving uh, this season. But anyways, in a few weeks, I'm going to be preaching a new series from the book of Hebrews, right? So I've been, my thoughts are a lot in Hebrews, uh, just kind of thinking about it, like, well, what's, you know, what's it about? Thinking about some of the key passages, uh, I can't help but come across it. But I, I especially love how Hebrews starts, and we're going to hit uh, Hebrews uh, 1, 1 to 4, by the end of December. And in Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, uh, it says this. It starts off this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And what do we learn in this those first two verses of Hebrews is that God is not a silent God, right? God is a God who speaks. He spoke. He speaks. He has spoken. He, that is, he reveals himself to mankind. And we learn in particularly these first two verses that the culmination of all God's speech, 
All of God's revelation is in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate revelation. He, he not only is God's revelation, he explains the rest of the word of God to us. He explains God to us, as John puts it in John chapter 1. This morning, Psalm 19 teaches us how God spoke to the world before Christ appeared. We know that the culmination of all God's speech is to point is to bring, is is in Christ, but how did God speak to the world before Christ appeared? How did people learn about him? Certainly as Hebrews 1:1 states and people learned about God from the prophets, but we're going to look today in our outline that this morning's psalm is going to reveal to us a total of three sources, three sources in all, through which God speaks to his people. And that's all before Christ. And uh, we're going to look at these three sources, and there are three sources still in which God speaks to his, through, uh, speaks uh, today. And hopefully uh, you will be encouraged by it, and you'll want to respond rightly. As an outline, we're going to look at three sources that declare the glory of God. It's pretty simple. Three sources that declare the glory of God, all right? So what are these sources? What are the sources of God's speech that declare the glory of God? How does God speak to the world? Well, the first source, as we read and look in this psalm, that declares the glory of God is his world. God's world is the instrument through which God speaks to uh, us, to mankind. We read in Psalm 19. Uh, let's look at the first verse, six verses. I'll read it out loud. It says, uh, I'll read the title too. It's called, the, For the Choir Director, A Psalm of David. Uh, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hand. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line or sound has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. <coughs> Excuse me. The author of this psalm, we learn, is David, King David. Uh, and King David, he directs the uh, the worshipers who are reading this psalm are really singing this song. It would have been sung, just as we sung much of it today. I, I love those odies. Uh, hopefully you guys got the, you know, just got the feels, you know, as you were listening to those great praise psalms. Uh, uh, man, that was wonderful. Thank you, uh, Stan, for choosing those psalms, those songs. And David here encourages the worshipers of God to look to the heavens, Look up at the skies, and you can look at it. Today is a beautiful day to look up into the heavens and the skies. Uh, you can't miss the, uh, the heavens and the skies. It's just so beautiful blue up there, right there. And, and uh, so, but it, he also says, look at the heavens, look at the expanse. Now, when we see that word expanse, it's not very familiar to us today, but it recalls to our mind, if, if you're a student of the scriptures, it go, draws us back all the way to day two of creation. Day two of creation recorded for us in Genesis 1, 6 to 7, and there, or 6 to 8, and it says, then on that second day, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water. So at first there was just water, and he said, uh, there's light, uh, this is the second day, and he said, let it separate the waters from 
the waters. So God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, there was morning, a second day. So that expanse in that, uh, in that uh, you know, uh, primeval history, when God made the world, uh, it was water, and he just split the water up. And, and there was, he created uh, waters above that would, you know, like a vapor canopy of some sort. And then there was the expanse in the middle, and he called it heavens. He called it the sky. And so they're really just two interchangeable words, the heavens and the, and the expanse, are, they're the same thing. It's basically the sky. You'll notice that the word heavens is, is in the plural. It's in the plural because in the Hebrew Bible, they think of heaven, they're like kind of sort of three heavens, if you will. Three heavens is the first heaven that's kind of just our, basically our atmosphere. It's just above us or in our world. It's, and then there's the, the next heavens. It's, it's the expanse of the universe that you see in the night sky, kind of just out beyond our atmosphere. It's farther where the stars are, where the moon is, the sun is. And then the third heaven would be where God dwells. And so that's why heavens are sort of the, uh, in the plural here. It's all of it together. It's all of God's creation. Really, even though it's talking about the heavens particularly here, it's really a reference to all of God's creation. It's, it's, God is talking about creation here. And King David says that the heavens or the skies, it tells us something. It is telling us something. They are telling us something. They are telling us of the glory of God. God is his glory, who he is, his character, his being, his nature, all that is good about God. The heavens reveal to us, speak to us. It declares to us not only God's glory, but it also tells us the work of hands. That when we look at the skies, when he looks at the skies, he says, and he looks at the heavens, he says, we can see God's fingerprints everywhere. God's hands are on it. It is his creative power that made all that is above us. Verse 2, furthermore, tells that the revelation of God from the heavens occurs, it's not just one moment, it's not like when you just see a comet flash across the sky, but it's something we see every day, day to day, night to night. It's at the day you see it, it's at the night you see it, and then the next day you still see it, and the next night you still see it, and the next day you see it, and the next night you see it. Every day, every night, we are able to see the glory of God. It speaks to us of God's glory, it speaks to us of the work of his hands, that what God has done. It points to us that there's a creator. They reveal the, the, the existence of God. Every day the, the heavens are, are pouring forth this kind of speech. Even if you're not listening, but if you have ears to listen and eyes to see, you look at creation, you would be able, David says, you would be able to hear the speech of creation, that they're revealing the knowledge of God. They're revealing to us how you, that you can know that there's a God who exists. Now, when we get to verse 3 of Psalm 19, it says all of a sudden there is no speech, though verse 2 just simply just said day-to-day pours forth speech. So it's an apparent contradiction, but it's only an apparent contradiction. What it's saying is that though the heavens do not use literal words of human speech like I am now, the heavens are nevertheless communicating God's glory and activity. They're communicating just by their existence. In fact, verse 4 tells us that their, their line, I think you have a little footnote that says, or it may be translated as their sound, their sound or their utterances, it spreads throughout all the earth. No matter, uh, the, the whole, the concept is that 
no matter where you are on earth, you can look up. It's amazing, right? This is, or you can look up and you see the skies, whether it's daytime, nighttime. And wherever you are, whatever time it is, you can look up and you can see the revelation of God. It speaks of God. If we would just look with eyes. Now, of course, when we look at the skies, like today, right now, I'm not sure, many, many times the most prominent thing in the sky is what? It is the sun. The sun is the sky. Well, sometimes we like the blue, but you can't help and notice the sun in the sky. And in fact, it refers to the sun at the end of verse 4. Now, the sun is significantly to be mentioned here and by David because the sun in the ancient Near East religions was worshipped as a god, one of their, often one of many gods. But this verse makes clear that God is, is greater than the sun. You think the sun is a god. Well, God is the creator of the sun, and he put the sun in the sky. He placed a tent for the sun. It's as if every night the tent, the you know, the the sun goes down and it goes into its tent and then it comes back out. You know, every day, every night comes in, comes in tent, out of tent. It's that picture. Whatever. Furthermore, in verse five, this sun that David starts describing is described with two pictures of of the. The energy, the, 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 the activity of, of the sun. First, it's described as a, a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. <laughs> That's been many years, it's been 25 years for me as a bridegroom coming out of my chamber. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, been a long time, but, um, you know, the, the bridegroom coming out of his chamber is uh, getting out, coming out. He's, e- he's, he's uh, eager to see his bride, he's eager to get married. Uh, that's a it's an ex- excited day. He's he's not going to like oh dilly dally. He's not going to take his time. He wants to get to the church on time. Wants to get married. You know, it's full of zeal, full of energy. That's a picture of the, the bridegroom coming out of his chamber. He's eager to to, to become a a husband. And then there's another picture here as a as a strong man running his course. Picture of a, he's uh, someone who has uh, energy. It's like when you think about a strong man running his course. I often think of those Ironman triathletes. Anybody do that? Wow, if you did that, I made your respect to you. You know, you got to like swim like two miles and then, you know, uh, bike a couple, you know, like 100 miles or something like that, or, or 20 miles, I think. No, bike 100 miles and then uh, run basically a marathon all in one day. That's crazy. But that's like a strong man running in his race. It's someone who's committed, devoted. It's a picture of strength, full of energy. And every day, the, the sun refl- reveals that energy. It comes out every day full of, full of that uh, energy. It never stops as far as our observation goes. You know, many scientists today can measure and say, oh, it's produced a little more shiny today, a little more, a little more uh, flares today, and things like that. But every day from our observation, we look at the sun, it comes up and it goes down, it comes up and, comes, and it shines just as brightly as ever. Every day it rises on one end of the heavens and travels its circuit, and it's, it always runs, goes over a specific circuit, kind of trail, to the other end of the heavens, to the other end of the sky. Every day it does that. It never tires. It never stops. You can imagine why people worshipped the sun as a god, because it was so constant. It was so prevalent. It would it'd be so faithful, you know, that it was just always there. And once more, people recognized that they needed the sun. The sun, the sun gave them warmth, gave them heat, 
The sun helped their, uh, the uh, of plants to grow. All the earth sees the sun, experiences the sun, receives benefits from the sun. And we're tempted to worship it, but we should worship the one who made it. According to the U.S. Department of Energy website I looked up recently, the sun produces 173,000 terawatts of solar energy. Now, I'm not an you know, engineer, so that sounds like a lot. It's not like an lot. 173,000 terawatts of solar energy strikes the earth continuously at any one time. 173,000 terawatts of energy from the sun is saying. Now, you, you, you engineers, they don't explain that to me. But what I did gather is this. The practical evidence is that, that, that of the, that 173,000 terawatts of energy that's always continuously, you can't even say every second, it's like every millisecond that's striking the earth from the sun is still 10,000 times the world's total energy use at that moment. 10,000 times what we would need for our energy. And here we are, we're like, oh man, we're fighting wars over energy, gas, and stuff like that. But God's like giving this abundant, never-ending source of energy for us. Everybody receives the the energy from the sun. We we live because of it. Our plants grow because of it. We get our vitamin D from our sun. We remain healthy because of the sun. It keeps us warm. The sun provides the heat to preserve life on earth, and God made it. Is there a God who is so good? Yes, absolutely. Because look at the sun. Look at the skies. During the day, we look up, we see the sun, and all we see all its glory. We see God's glory. But during the night, we also see God's glory. We look up and we see, what do we see? We see the lights of our city. It's been a long time since I've seen just the, in, if you go out into the, you know, the boonies and where there's no lights, there, we're far away from the cities. You can look up in the sky, and the uh, best we can have it today is just to have pictures. You can find pictures on the web. Uh, but if, basically, you just look up with your naked eye. You should be able to see all the stars in the space. Uh, you might even be able to see, uh, you know, some of the the uh, other comets and the planets, and even as well. And all of it, it's a beautiful picture. It reveals God's glory. Every one of those little bright, shining things is is a star, like our sun, around approximately like our sun. And God made it. And this, and some of them are like, you know, how many X number of light years away? It's far. All of it. It's the vast universe that we are in, and God made it all. God created it all. He created it how? Did it take him a long time to do it? No. He created it by simply speaking it. Genesis 1. He said, let there be, and there was. God created the world by the universe by speaking into existence so that everything in the heavens, everything in the heavens was made by him. Not to mention, of course, everything in creation was made by him. And this creation, our heavens, the the expanse, the the sun, the the moon, the stars, all of it together, whatever, everything in between, everything included from the, the just the vastness of the universe as a whole to the tiniest atom that's in that makes up the one of the parts of the page of my Bible. All of it, if we were to study it, scientists can study these things. And we would learn some amazing things about this creation. 
And it ought to remind us, it ought to lead us to say, there's a God. There's a God who made these things. This is not all just chance. This is not all just something that came out of nothing by chance. It's much more likely that something came out of nothing by a creator. Romans 1.20, Paul alludes to this thought that creation reveals God's glory. In this way, Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, His, as God's, invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. I love this verse. Uh, it's one of the great, uh, it's a great apologetics verse, really. That ever since the world has been created, all we can look at creation, we should be able to see God's attributes, see his character, see his power particularly, see his nature, that is, that he exists, the divine nature, that there is a God. That's why there's a, in our, throughout our world, you don't have to tell people that there's a God. Most people, if you're left on their own, it's going to think there's a, some greater, a greater being. And for the most part, throughout human history, people have believed in a God or gods. It's only as we've become more sinful and we become more capable, we, we, we are able to look a little bit further than with our little, uh, little instruments and tools that we start thinking, well, you know, oh, there's no God. I, I, we figured it out. We've been everywhere in the universe. Oh, I've learned everything there is to learn, and there's no God. You fool. That's what God calls him, by the way. Fool says there is no God. Now, but the world, as God has created, if we are to, um, to simply be honest to look at it, we would see that God exists. It's understood that it's made, just as when we see a watch, you know, the best illustration is the watch, and you happen to see a watch on the, on the ground, you pick it up, say, oh, wow, this is amazing that this occurred after millions of years. No, we know that we see a watch, some that reflects design, some that reflects complexity. It doesn't just that you're missing one part, the whole thing will be broken. That this would happen only by design, by creative activity, by God. And that's what we believe that, because that's what God's word tells us. The world that God had created has his fingerprints all over it. Anyone can look at our world and recognize that there is an eternally powerful God who created it, so the question is, why do many not see it? It's because of their sin. Two verses earlier from Romans 1.20 is Romans 1.18. And Romans 1.18 says that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Basically, they don't, they don't want to know the truth because they love their sin. We love our sin, so we don't want to know the truth. If you deny your God exists, the, the, benefit, the practical benefit of denying that God exists is that you can then be your own God. That's the practical benefit. That's, what, that's the result of it. You can decide whatever you want to do. You're your own judge. You, you want to be a donkey? You can be a donkey. Who's to say that you're not? Because there's, you know, you're God. It's whatever you feel in here. It's not true. It's who God made you, who God has set our creator made you and says you are. That's who you are.
Though man often denies the truth, creation still speaks. And the more Christians study our world, that's why we need Christian scientists, by the way. If you're a Christian scientist, kudos to you. Christian biology teachers, kudos to you. For you are those who instruct others about the world around us. And you can interpret it correctly as one, as, a, as one who accepts what the word of God says. That there is a God. All of it points to God. I love our, um, we are, our kids are in a, what's called a Friday Mem Co-op. It's a, basically, it's a kids group that they uh, have every Friday. Uh, they get together here at the church. It's part of our ministry of the Mem uh, Fellowship and they do basically light instruction in our, of our kids. They, they use a curriculum that teaches them oh, various subjects like math and history and science and geography and English and, and Latin. <laughs> okay, uh, they teach them these things. Uh, and, but it's not just that they teach them those things. I love uh, at least uh, what they, they strive to do, like what Cindy tries to do, and I'm sure the other teachers do the same is that oftentimes they have this board, and in the middle of the board, uh, we, they always put God. Put God because they want our kids to learn that whatever you study in our world, everything that you can study in the world, whatever you can study, whether it's science, math, geography, Latin, even history, uh, and English, these language, language these things are, that are part of our world, part of our creation, they're gifts from God, really, all of it, they point to God. They help us to see God more. They help us see his creativity. They help us see his activity. They help to see his logic, his consistency, the rules that he establishes, his providence in our world, and all those things that they can see God's handiwork. And I'm thankful for the mothers who lead that ministry and teach faithfully in there. We're grateful to them. They're teaching the next generation what God's word says. The more we study our world, the more we ought to see God's glory and God's hand. But even so, even as we study creation, study our world, creation, studying our world has a limit. Though it points to the existence and the power of God, it does not reveal who that God is. It does not reveal who specifically that God is. And that is why we need our second source, as David writes about, that declares the glory of God. And the second source of God's glory that declares God's glory is his word. His word in verses 7 to 13. God's word in 7 to 13 would read this. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. In verses 7 to 9, David uses a, a series of synonyms, six of them in all, for the word of God. He uses law, testimony, precepts, commandment, as well as fear and judgments. And each 
uh, name, different name for God's word is followed by an adjective, a description, then describing that in God's word essentially, and then ending, concluding with a, a result of God's word or an effect of God's word or sometimes it's just a, a truth about God's word. And so let me just walk through each of them briefly. Uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That is God's word is, is without error. It doesn't make any mistakes. It doesn't make any mistakes in all that God reveals. He, it does not make any mistakes about what it states, whether about man, God, or mankind. It may use language of approximation. It may use uh, anthropomorphism. It may speak from, uh, from pr- man's perspective as it looks into the world. But all, whatever it states, it states it truly. Thus, God's word is perfectly suited for man. It's particularly to restore our soul. People, uh, you know, if, you, if your soul is hurting and you want to get it restored, where, where do you turn to look? Our world would tell us to go look to probably a, a psychologist, right? That's normal. That's probably where people, uh, people like to study psychology in college. One of those easy classes that we all like to psych 101 is a great intro class. But, you know, it's fun because, and a lot of people study psychology. I had a lot of friends who want to study psychology, and, you know, it's okay if you study psychology. But a lot of my friends study psychology because they wanted to better understand themselves, and oftentimes they themselves were hurting, they themselves were wrestling with things in their life, and they wanted to study their, their lives, their souls, what the, at least the man's study of it, so that they can then help them figure out their own problems. But psychology, at least uh, we learn in college, is basically limited to what man has figured out about man. And man being finite does not know all things. Better than to study what man says about man is to study what the creator of man says about man. God says about man. And God's word tells us about who, we, who he is, but it also tells us about who we are. It tells us about how we are at once the height, the, the height of, of God's favor as being created in the image of God, all mankind created in his image. And at the same time, we are also the most set apart. We're the most. We are the farthest away from Him because we become. We have fallen in our in our first parents, Adam and Eve. We've, uh, we've fallen, and we are become sinners by nature, under God's judgment. Oftentimes, rejecting God. But the God's law is perfect, and that it restores the soul because God knows man's problems, and God knows the solution to his problems, and he reveals it to us in his word. Next, David says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That God's word is sure means it's confirmed, it's established, it's reliable, it's faithful. It's something that you can depend upon to be trustworthy. You know, when you're simple, it's it's basically you're naive. You just don't know anything. Uh, And when you don't know anything, well, you got to know something, so you have to go to someone that teaches you. And you can go out there and find a teacher, but... There are, it's possible that you might find a bad teacher who will teach you bad things. And that's why if you find a teacher that's teaching you error, then you're, if you're naive, it's not going to make you more wise. It's going to make you just double a fool. But God's word, which is sure, it's, it's trustworthy. If you study God's word, it will make you wise. It will give you the skills that you need to live life on this earth and, most important, give you the, the knowledge and understanding to have a right relationship with God. 
Next, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. God's word is, is right. It's, it's right. It's, it's right. It's true. Now, sometimes God's truth is difficult to accept, and it's not often what sinners want to hear. But Jesus said that the truth shall set you free. Truth sets us free from sin. And that, when we're set free from truth, when we know the truth about ourselves, and it's, we're free from the error, that is, uh, the error and the, the condemnation that because of our sin, it truly is, gives us reason to rejoice. It rejoices our, our heart because we know what is true, what is right. Sadly, too many people are happy to, to live with that which is error. But living with error, living, thinking uh, with error is only to our detriment. It does not help us. It only hurts us. That's why we need to speak truth. Even if the world doesn't like to hear the truth, for their good, we must speak it. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. That's, God's word is pure. It's holy. It's not something that's been diluted. It speaks uh, clearly. It's like eyeglasses, you know. If, uh, if you have eyeglasses and they are dirty, uh, then, you know, smudge. Sometimes they, you know, get that grease on those eyeglasses. You can't see out of them. You, you don't see very well. But uh, what you do is you, you need to clean them every day. And uh, you clean them, and then when you put them on, you say, wow, I can see real clearly. God's the commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens our eyes, allows our eyes to see and understand clearly what God wants us to understand. God's word does that. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. God's word is clean, it's pure, it's not defiled by anything. Some kind of similar wording as pure before. But unlike, it has this idea of the, the ceremonial defilement kind of thing, but it's, it's ceremony clean. Unlike man that easily becomes defiled and needs all sorts of uh, laws for, uh, for cleansing ourselves and, you know, and then making, giving appropriate offering, God's word never gets defiled. It, it is always that which is clean, and therefore it, and it endures forever. The last way, right? it's, it's, a, it's profitable forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. That is simply God's word is true, right? It's, it doesn't speak error. It doesn't speak lies, error, or half-truths. It does not deceive. It does not twist. It does not hide reality. God's word is true and righteous in all that it, its evaluations of man. It, speak right, it speaks righteously, but it also reveals righteousness to us, so how we can have righteousness through faith in Christ. So God's word is characterized by all these above attributes, and ultimately, they reveal God's character, right? They reveal us about who God is. Just as the word of God is, so they reveal God, who God is. Just as the word of God is, so God is perfect. God is sure, God is right, God is pure, God is clean, God is true. And since God's words are these things and are revelation of God, then David concludes rightly in verse 10 that if this is what's God's word, God's reflection of God, and it has all these benefits to us, he concludes that therefore it is a great treasure. It ought to be one of the greatest treasures that we have. It is to be more desirable than gold. You know, Whatever it is that you consider of great value, something that is uh, of value to you, whether it's gold or silver, precious stones, diamonds, jewelry, uh, maybe it's uh, monetary things you have, like your IRA, your 401k, your, your uh, 
your uh, other uh, retirement <laughs> things, your, um, your bitcoins, your, your homes, your houses, your, your pensions, whatever it is that you think of great value, usually it's, for us it's monetary value. David would write, God's word is more precious than that. More desirable than that. Is God's word more desirable to you than your treasures? If you were given a choice between, say, <laughs> I don't know what they come in these days. Let's just say a brick of gold, okay? A brick of gold and this Bible, this Bible, this particular one. Okay, no, the Bible. Which one would you treasure more? I think most of us would be like, oh, I'll take the gold, you know? And then, so I'll buy, you know, I'll buy some more Bible. But there's only one brick of gold and there's only one Bible in the world, which you choose. You can either have the Bible or you can have the gold. I think we, we know that, we, that God's word is the treasure. But sometimes in our daily lives, we don't treat it as such. How do I know that? Because of what we pursue. And I say we because I, I like you too. Things we pursue often are financial things, monetary things, material things. But if we are here in this word and pursuing the knowledge of God, then we would be, we, if we really understood it as a treasure, we would be looking in this book more just as much. Further, Dave describes it in a second analogy. Not only is it like gold, not only is it greater as, as a a great a treasure desirable than gold, but God further, he further describes God's word as sweeter than honey. Now, I'm not a honey person. I don't really like honey. Uh, tell you the truth, mom used to make me drink it in my you know warm water whenever I had a cough or something like that. Kids do that, so I never liked it. But I've come to like it recently because of yogurt, <laughs> Greek yogurt. You know, get a little Greek yogurt, plain Greek yogurt. Mm, gross. Trader Joe's, you go Trader Joe's though. Greek yogurt with honey. Oh, boy, don't go all by it because I, I want to make sure it's still when I get there. Any number of our family could just eat that whole bucket in one serving if we wanted to. It's that good. It's, it makes the difference. It's like, this, this is good. That's just honey. Unbelievable. Maybe there's some sugar. There must be some sugar in there. But it's Greek yogurt with honey. It's so sweet, so des- delicious, so desirable. And, I can, you know, of course, the honey, I understand honey makes, makes things sweeter. It's that, it's that, it makes things taste that much better. And is God's word as sweet as honey? Is it as desirable, as good, delicious as honey? Is it as desirable? Maybe honey's not your thing. Well, just put, replace it with your favorite food. For me, it would be ribs. You know, for you, what it would be, you know? Is, is God's word more, more desirable, more, more sweeter, more sweet than your favorite food or your favorite dessert? You had a choice again between God's word and your favorite food. What would you choose? Now, I know it's kind of an unfair, comp- you know, a comparison in the sense that you know you you always have God's. You kind of know you have God's word. Well, let's just say, in the morning, you could eat your favorite breakfast, or you can choose to read God's word. What do you choose? It's a question for you to answer. First Peter two, oh, did I put it in there? Oh, I didn't get it in. Oh well. First uh, Peter two two to three, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, 
so that you may, by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you've tasted of it, it's good. You know, if you had asked me before, I would have never wanted uh, Greek yogurt with honey because I don't like honey. Because I was eating Greek yogurt. It was, it was gross. So I, I want to try the Greek yogurt. As soon as I tried it, I tasted it. Oh, this is good. Uh, every time I go to Trader Joe's, I'm getting Greek yogurt with honey because that's the good stuff. And, um, and if God's word, once you've tasted it, if you tasted God's kindness and his word, you'll, you ought to want it still because it, it's that good. He is that good to us. God's word is that way. Well, anyways, in verses 11 to 13 of the Psalm, Psalm 19, God, David then reveals the twofold practical implications of God's word for the, for the worshiper. First of all, God's word warns us of the danger of sin. It warns us. By it, your, your servant is warned. God's word reminds us of sin because sin is pervasive in our lives. Sin is part of our nature. It separates us from God. Our sin, what's more, earns us. It's the wages of sin. It is death. That's it's God's judgment. It's separation from God, not only in this, on this life relationally, but after this life forever eternally. So sin, God's word has a proclamation of warning us of danger. But secondly, God's word also rewards those who keep God's word. Rewards us that there's a blessing in keeping God's word. There's a blessing of fellowship with God, first and foremost. We get to know our creator, know our God. You've ever thought about purpose? One of the, for me as a believer, one of the greatest blessings of, of being a Christian is in knowing my purpose in this world. Knowing why I exist, knowing why I'm here on earth. You know, otherwise it's really just meaningless because we're all going to die. And you just might as well just get the most toys you can or get the most money or get the most pleasure because that's, you know, you're just going to die. So you might as well just get all that. But if you know that there's life after death, if you know how you, what you do here, decisions you make, especially the decision regarding Christ, makes a difference in this world for your eternity, then you will live differently. You'll live with purpose. You'll live as those who have created in Christ Jesus for the good works, knowing that as I'm go- where I'm going, I want everybody that I love particularly, but Jesus tells me, don't just take the people you love. In fact, yes, take your enemies with you. Love your enemies. Take them with you too. Share them with them, the good news of Christ, and by, the, by his providence, sovereign providence, he may bring some of those along, along the way. God rewards us with fellowship with God, right relationship with fellow saints, and the blessings of hope, blessings of peace, blessings of comfort. God's uh, understanding about why we experience the things that we, we experience in our world, there is a great reward in following God's word. Yet, more often than not, David recognizes here that we, as worshipers, fall short. We're, we're often even blind to our sin. We, we don't remember, we, we often ignore or neglect our, 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 the sin in our lives. Who can discern their errors? Great rhetorical question. Who can discern it? Does anyone out here thinks that we can discern all our errors? That's why we need people to sometimes lovingly come alongside. Our parents are the first ones to do it. Lovingly, gently, to point out our sin so that we would learn, learn to turn away from sin. But the brothers and sisters come alongside and do the same thing in our lives and as well. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
David responds then by praying and asking God to forgive him of his sins. Because no one, none of us uh, will always be aware of all sins. But when God does reveal it, we ought to ask forgiveness. And that we ought to ask God to help me to keep me away from presumptuous sins. Sins that I would just continue, you know, intentionally do. He prays for protection. He prays for forgiveness of sins. And so, while the world of God, while the world of God, that is another name for that, by the way, is general revelation, speaks to the existence of the power and power of God, the word of God, also known as special revelation, speaks to the nature and will of God. So, one reveals existence and power of God. The other reveals that too, but also the word reveals the very nature of who God is, who he is, that he's the creator, who he is, that he made, he's our creator, and what he, his will is for our life, that we would be holy as he is holy, that we would walk, put our faith in him, trust in him, we would call upon him in our times of trouble. Of course, we know that our first parents failed in doing that, and, and so that's why... Um, that's why we, all of us need God's provision or our sin, from our sins, and that provision is, of course, through Jesus Christ. That's why we need this book, the Bible. It's not why we need God's Word. God's Word reveals to us God. It reveals to us who God is. It reveals to us who we are. It's like a mirror to us. It, it shows us things about ourselves that even that no one, apart from this book, none of us else would ever have figured out. No other book reveals God's glorious plan of salvation to mankind. This book does. No other book reveals God's, this, God's hand throughout human history like this book does. God graciously speaks to mankind through his world and through his word. There's one more source, though, that is implied in our passage. It's not traditionally in the part of the outline. It's usually lumped in with the second, the second point here, the Word of God. But I think for our, it's a, if you will, it's an applicational point today. But it's a third, a third source that declares the glory of God. God speaks to our world through a third source, reveals himself to a third source, and that is, as you would guess, his worshipers, his worshipers. Verse 14, David prays at the very end, continues his prayer to the very end of Psalm 19, and he prays, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David concludes this magnificent and beautiful psalm with a humble prayer that God would direct his words and his thoughts in a way that is acceptable to God. And as worshipers of God today, brothers and sisters, just like David, we, we ought to respond. In light of God's world and, our, and his word particularly, being sinners that we are we, and who, who need forgiveness, we ought to ask the Lord to direct the words that come out of our mouth and to direct the thoughts that are in our minds for the, from out of the thoughts or the heart come the actions, the deeds, the, the speech that God would direct our words and our thoughts to be acceptable to Him. Now, our words and our thoughts can be acceptable and pleasing to Him in many ways. A lot of times you read that and He says, well, basically just in my day-to-day, whatever I'm doing, I'm going about, whatever I say, whatever I think, that it would be pleasing to Him. And, that, and that's a generally 
true. And those, uh, but we can, there are other ways that, we can, that our thoughts and our words can be pleasing to accept them to God. When we tell the gospel, our words and our thoughts are, are pleasing to the Lord. We can encourage someone with a word. Someone's hurting. Someone uh, needs a prayer. We can pray with them. That's a way that our words and our thoughts can be acceptable to the Lord. We can disciple others with God's truths. That's a way that our words and our thoughts can be acceptable to God. But a significant way that our words and our thoughts can be acceptable in God's eyes is when our words and thoughts are focused on praise of God. Yesterday in our Thanksgiving dinner, I shared from Hebrews 13.15. And Hebrews 13.15 reads this, Through him that is Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And so we're reminded that we, we are to let us, let us praise God in, with our lives. Let us praise God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let us praise God continually. Let us praise God with our lips, the fruit of lips, the giving thanks to his name. And then when we do that, that's on one other way, a significant way, that we can allow our words and our thoughts to be acceptable before God. And if we need any final encouragement, David starts us off, uh, starts off by, or ends including by acknowledging that the Lord is my rock and my redeemer. That's a powerful, short little word, short little phrase. But when you say it, when you think about it, it's a powerful truth. The Lord, my God, is my rock and my redeemer. You know, I don't have to explain too much about that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The imagery itself just speaks so powerfully. The whole image of God is a rock. He's a, he's a, like, uh, like a, a something that's a, there is a something you can find shelter protection from. That he's a rock. He's steady. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. In the very previous Psalm, Psalm eighteen, David writes this. I love how he starts. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. You see the imagery there of God being a rock. Someone is a fortress. He's a strength. He's someone who protects him. He's someone he can rely upon. He's steady. He's a shield, and he delivers him from the enemies. He's a, he's a redeemer. He's a savior. But don't miss how he starts. He starts with, I love you, O Lord. Can you say, brothers and sisters, right now that you love the Lord? Would you say right now, if someone asks, hey, do you love the Lord? You say, yes, I love the Lord. Will you say to him, I love you, O Lord? Is the Lord your rock and your redeemer? Mm. If so, then, if he's that, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Let us offer up fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Let us tell others of the glory of God. Just like the world and the word, let the worshipers of God declare his glory. Let us speak and praise our God for his final word, his son, our rock and our redeemer.
as we wrap up then, I just want to give you some practical, uh, before I give you the three questions for, uh, three questions for your, uh, your um, meditation discussion, just want to give you an opportunity to just apply what you learned today. You have an opportunity to, to speak and, and use and declare God's glory. Uh, yesterday, if you, if you weren't here yesterday, this is for you. Okay, you weren't here yesterday, you, this, this is particularly for you. And I want to invite you, uh, you maybe walked in the door, you kind of look over there, this little uh, orange, yellow, red thing on that wall over there by the restroom. And you can, yeah, it's a tree, and it's got all sorts of leaves. And basically, it's our Thanksgiving tree. And I wanted our church family to participate in a Thanksgiving tree. And basically, it's just, you can grab a leaf, you don't have to, okay, it's optional. But I encourage you, if you'd like to, you can join our church family in giving thanks to God. And you can, there's on the back table there, right by where Brother Tim is, right behind him, there's a, a little box with a, with a uh, bag full of these leaves. Take a leaf, grab a pen, write something that you give thanks to God for this year. Anything, something you praise the Lord for, uh, whatever you're thankful. And then put your, you know, of course, uh, put your name on there if you'd like. I love you. You could. Uh, gives context, of course. And then with a tape, tape it up there on the tree anywhere, anywhere you'd like, okay? And that might be fun if you, you have kids. Kids would like to do that, I think. Who wouldn't like to stick something on the wall or write on something? You know, they, they just, they'll do it, right? They'll be happy to do it. It might be a fun family activity. And then take a photo in front of the tree. Uh, take a selfie if you like. Anyways, but I invite you to participate. That's one way that you can just kind of join together. And I hopefully will stand there for a little while until people make me take it down uh, to uh, encourage us to, that this reflects some of the praise that our church family gives thanks to God for. Of course, if... Uh, if you've already participated in that, then uh, all of us can apply some of these questions for discussion, for our reflection, is that as you look at the world, what points you to the glory of God? As you look at creation, there's so many things that point us to God's creation. What, what encourages you? What makes you, helps you to see God as you look at creation? From uh, up there to down here to our bodies itself as well. Secondly, how has God's word encouraged you this year to know him more? Uh, how's the... God may encourage you. God's words reveals his glory. How does it encourage you to know him more better? And then thirdly, for what in your life will you declare the glory of God? If worshipers of God can, are to be a speech that thought is acceptable to him, how are you uh, in your praise of God and the sacrifices of praise? And uh, it, it should be more than just what we sing here. You know, if we only sing praises of God here and then we go out there and we don't tell others what we praise God for, then there's something, there's something probably lacking. It's, it, 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 there's something that, uh, that is, falls short because God wants us to declare his glory. We're made to declare his glory. It's our purpose to bear the image of God and to become more like the image of Christ in our world. And that comes part, mostly a great part by living but it also must come through our speaking as well. And may our speech be that which declares the glory of God. All right, let's, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for this psalm. Thank you for the reminder that um, like the world, like the, your word, we as your worshipers too ought to join along and give you praise. That we ought to declare your glories through our lips, and in our thoughts. Father, thank you and praise you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. 
Thank you, Father, for sending us Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of the protection and deliverance that we need, deliverance from sin and judgment. God, we praise you and thank you for Christ. We pray that you would cause us to live our lives as we go out this week, especially as we, as we spend time with family and friends and loved ones at our Thanksgiving and meals, that you would open up opportunities for us to declare our praises of you, to share of how we're thankful, and that you will allow us to open heart, that you would open, go before us and open the hearts of our, of our beloved family and friends, that they would be willing to hear the good news. And Father, if there's no one in our life that we can share good news with, oh Lord, give us opportunities, open doors for us, we pray. Thank you most importantly for, for being our God and for saving us that we might worship you. Help us to faithfully do that until you call us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.